0: We talk a lot about the current Pacers on this podcast. Let's go all the way back to the very beginning of the Pacers franchise and talk about the formation of it and what it means for the team now by talking about the book Reborn by Mark Monteith about the earliest days of the Pacers franchise and how the groundwork was laid for what you know today. It's all coming today on the Locked On Pacers podcast.
1: You are Locked On Pacers, your daily Indiana Pacers
0: podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Happy Thursday, everybody, and welcome into another edition of the Lockdown Pacers podcast. Where we, of course, talk about the Indiana Pacers. As always, my name is Tony East. I cover the team for Forbes and SI, and today. It's the final book club of the month of this summer. Today, diving in to Reborn, Mark Monti's book about the Pacers, their return to Indianapolis, I guess the return of pro basketball to Indianapolis to be more clear, and what that was like in the earliest days of the ABA. Fascinating read for me to learn a lot about how many things had to go right for the Pacers early in their days as a franchise in the ABA and how that all set up both their success long-term and how they became an NBA franchise, who better to talk about Reborn by Mark Monteith than Mark Monteith himself. He's going to join us for this whole conversation talking about stories from the book, his research process, all sorts of fun stuff. It's a fantastic show. I'm glad to get it out this August. I think there's a lot of good stuff for everyone this month from current events to FIBA play to two book clubs. Last time looking at Blood in the Garden, the Pacers-Knicks overlaps in the 1990s. Of course, the How They Can Help series, which will continue next week, and player interviews Kiefer Sykes was yesterday Oscar Shibuy early this month? I believe another one next week for the housekeeping here at Lockdown Pacers. Next week will be no Labor Day show and no Friday show this week. So a four day air quotes weekend. Four episodes next week talking more about FIBA, hopefully another player interview, how they can help featuring the new forwards and one more show. And then we're back to every single day here on Lockdown Pacers. But I won't keep you waiting. Let's talk with Mark Monteith about Reborn and the earliest days of the Pacers franchise. Today, we're talking about Reborn, a book on the earliest days of the Pacers franchise. Got it right here for those of you who can actually see it, about the formation of the Pacers, their early days in the ABA and more. And you get some early hints of names involved in the Pacers that have transcended time. And joining me to talk about this book, perhaps the perfect person. In fact, I can cut the perhaps. The person who knows more about it because He wrote it. It's Mark Monteith, the author of the book, formerly with Good Lord, the Indy Star, Pacers.com, now with IBJ writing more books. Mark, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, Tony, good to be with you. It was fascinating diving into all this because I learned during last season that my basketball history, being 28 years old, is embarrassing. I don't know anything pre my A. I barely know stuff about the Jordan era, so diving into all this stuff has been fascinating for me. And I figure the team I cover, I should really get into the history of and uh, Mark I'm going to ask you about two things on the first 10 pages of the book from a general perspective one is uh, a player on the p- pre Pacers franchise the the Couch Skies. I want to make sure I'm saying that right um, yes who made $50 a game um, which was insane to me to see a player who makes plays 24 minutes per game right now on a league minimum salary and makes about $500 per minute in the NBA the other part in the first 10 pages was Two teams experimenting playing in Indianapolis with 12-foot rims in a game. So those two anecdotes, I I lobbed you to say, how much have you seen, both for your research and your own eyes, the NBA change? Because I know those weren't NBA games, but seeing that, those numbers and those anecdotes, compared to now just kind of blew my mind.
1: Yeah, a lot of people don't know that Indianapolis had an NBA franchise from the first year of the NBA, the Olympians, 49-50 season. And obviously they were playing a much different game than what the Pacers play today. No three-point shot, of course, no time clock, no 24-second clock. Um, You know, guys didn't dunk, uh, you know, just a completely different type of game. Uh, So as the athletes have gotten better and more skilled, the game has improved in my mind. You know, I guess I'm old enough to be nostalgic, but I'm not one of these guys who will tell you oh the guys back then were so much better than today you know it's just <laughs> it's not true you know it's not true um it's almost like the guys today have hacked the game because they're so talented with their three-point shooting their athleticism to me the rims are a little too low and the court isn't quite big enough to really uh, uh allow the athletes to spread out and do what they could do but Uh, Yeah, you know, Indianapolis was fortunate to have an original NBA franchise and they had pro basketball teams before that, going back to the late 20s, early 30s. And so, you know, Indianapolis had pro basketball teams before there was a jump ball uh, before or when there was a jump ball after every basket. So um, kind of the Indianapolis pro teams have traced the history of basketball in general all these years.
0: I wish I could have seen the 12-foot rim. I believe you had in there that George Mikan went 2-14 in that game, like just to see even the best players totally struggle from that change, I think would have been com- totally fascinating to see in person.
1: Yeah, it's funny. People talk about when they talk about the rim being too low, and in some ways it is for today's athletes. Uh they talk about there ought to be a 12-foot rim, and I don't know why 12 feet, you know. Sports Illustrated once ran a cover story back in the 60s of the case for the 12-foot rim. And I, I, you know, I could see racing the rim, but not two feet. You know, that'd be <laughs> pretty crazy. I 20%. could see racing it three inches or maybe six inches or something like that. But I don't know why people come up with 12 feet. But there was a, a game uh, played with 12-foot rims once just to kind of see how it went. And, you know, obviously players hadn't practiced uh, at that height or anything. It had to be a real mess. It's a shame that there was no video of it. But there was a game, you know, uh, an NBA game with a 12-foot rim.
0: Not only a mess, but I believe you had in there that the next day when there was a game in there, there was a player who like went and bought a soda and drank it at halftime and they were drinking beer in the locker room. Just not the same uh, basketball experience as we see today. Something else that struck me pretty early in this reading that I didn't really know is, you know, I, growing up here when I did, I think of Indy more as a sports town now, but at the time the Pacers were forming or at least trying to be formed before the ABA was even really a thing is there was a committee searching for any any pro sports team in Indy not necessarily basketball but looking at pro football pro hockey the mlb even though the indians were already here and you laid out those pursuits of other sports but kind of how much to you of the the pacers formation and being in indy was just kind of lucky timing around that summer
1: yeah a lot you know really fortunate timing you know the city was ready for something uh the olympians who were in the nba folded in 1953 uh due to a scandal and uh, they So the city went 14 years without professional football, without professional basketball, and uh, hockey kind of came and went during that time. So the city was growing and wanted to be major league in something, and there had been some pursuits of getting an NBA franchise over the years, but nobody really had the money to get an expansion franchise. There was even talk about getting the Royals to play some of their home games in Indianapolis. And one thing that I didn't remember growing up here that I learned in my research was just most years between mid fifties up till the the ABAs formation in 67, there was an NBA game here, one or two a year played out at the Coliseum. You know, when Oscar Robertson joined the Royals, they'd play a game over here. Uh, You know, Slick Leonard played here in a game with the Chicago Zephyrs one time. So, you know, like once a year, there would be an NBA game here out at the Coliseum, the regular season game. And the NBA Finals even had a couple of games here in the mid-50s with the Fort Wayne Pistons because they couldn't use their facility. But the city wanted a franchise and something that was major league. And there was a real sincere effort to grow the city, not just in sports, but in other, assets, other aspects of arts and so forth. Greater Indianapolis Progress Committee, I believe is what it was called. And guys like, um, uh, you know, some of the people who are still with us today were part of those committees, actually. I'm told the committee still exists, although I never hear anything about it. <laughs> but um, the, the, the getting a franchise was a big part of that, and it just so happened somebody formed the ABA, uh, like, late 66, going into 1967, and then Indianapolis got wind of that, and a group of guys – Put money down to, to dib put dibs on a franchise for the ABA. Cost $6,000 at a meeting in New York. And uh, lo and behold, the city had a franchise.
0: Hey, everybody. Let's take a short little break so I can talk to you about FanDuel. Roster cuts are done. The NFL season is so close. Get ready for the NFL season with incredible offers from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers can bet $5 on FanDuel, and you'll get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed. Who plus... All customers who bet that $5 will get $100 off NFL Sunday ticket from YouTube and YouTube TV. That's a great deal. Now is the best time to join FanDuel, the app. Super easy to use, and you can bet on everything from spreads to player props, your faves, and more. So visit FanDuel.com and kick off the NFL season with an offer that you will not want to miss. That's FanDuel, an official partner of the NFL. That was something else that that struck me, too, is the six thousand deposit wasn't a guarantee that you'd actually get a team, right? Like a team from Hawaii was trying to put it money and all this stuff, like seeing how they tried to organize it and prioritize everything even kind of added to the luck element to me.
1: Yeah, you know, yeah, it's it's one thing to put six thousand dollars down and say you have a franchise, but at some point you got to spend a lot more than that to actually have a franchise. You got to hire people, you got to have office space. You know, all these expenses that come with having a professional franchise. Uh, Eventually, there was a meeting in New Orleans, and uh, the owners of this team had to uh, fork over thirty thousand dollars to officially have a franchise. Um, But there was a meeting in New York. And uh, a group of businessmen in Indianapolis and Lafayette put in like a thousand bucks a piece and uh, claimed a franchise. And uh, of course, at that time, there wasn't a red, white and blue ball or anything. But there are pictures of George Mikan with the basketball that says Indianapolis on it. And uh, it had the newspapers that Indianapolis was back in pro basketball and had uh, this team in this new league that uh, most people didn't know anything about and most people probably assumed would really never come to exist.
0: Especially because the ABL failed so recently, right? Right before that. So, you know, the competition for an, an NBA competitor didn't work before. And in fact, that was kind of a fun subplot to me of all this was some gambles by NBA teams that the league, the ABA would fail and that they would be able to then scoop up a lot of the player assets and likeness of the ABA, which of course never happened. You just mentioned the a financial part of this, like you you pay the $6,000, but then you have to pay your players and your staff. And one of the anecdotes that made me laugh was Bob Nedelicki negotiating a Corvette, correct, into his contract. And a Corvette was several times, several players, cars were involved in the negotiations of their contracts. That made me chuckle, especially because the GM of the Pacers, the first GM, didn't really understand what he was doing, giving that away. You had a lot more contract details than that. Do you remember any other quirks or silly things of that nature when they were trying to to lure people in at the beginning?
1: Yeah, well, in Nedelicki's case, you know, he had some negotiating power because he had been drafted uh, by the NBA team, by San Diego. Uh, So when he came in, you know, the Pacer owners knew they had to compete for him and uh, they negotiated a contract and he asked about a car and uh mike Storn said okay and and Nettle said what kind nettle he said a corvette and Storn and said i don't what's a corvette he said it's a chevrolet and so he got it you know he had the use of a corvette for a year nettle like his father was a surgeon and so nettle grew up in a wealthy family and he drove a corvette every year you know his dad bought him a corvette every year when he was in college so he was used to driving corvettes in fact he even flew himself in uh, for one of his negotiating sessions because he had a pilot's <laughs> license so that was unusual um Matthew H a player from Michigan State that only lasted one year um got himself a car uh, through negotiating with Mike Storn, and the story was that uh H asked about a car and uh, uh and, and Storm said okay and H said well what car what kind of car and Storm pointed out the window to where he had a rental car. He said, well, that car, car like that out there. And H thought he's going to get literally that car. So uh Storn had explained, no, not that car, but I'll get you a car like that. You know, <laughs> and, and H wound up only playing one year and didn't play that much in the year he was with the team. So, you know, crazy things like that. Some guys got, uh, you know, Larry Humes, who was an usher at Pacer Games not that long ago, out of out of madison indiana mr basketball in 1962 all-american at evansville had been drafted by the chicago franchise in 1966 didn't quite make that team pacers scoop him up in 67 they're excited about a former mr basketball and local guy uh evansville all-american and and they gave him a two thousand dollar signing bonus he recalls going to the bank and going home and spreading out all those $20 bills on his bed. You know, look at this. I got $2,000, you know. Pacers were so confident he'd be on the team. They scheduled both a preseason and regular season game at his high school gymnasium, and then he wound up getting cut. He was the last guy cut from the team. So they still had to go down to Madison and play a regular season game at the high school gym there. Not very many people went, obviously, uh, and they kind of got ripped in in the newspaper down there. But um, that kind of stuff, just weird stuff like that. Uh, A franchise, you got to think, you know, it's harder than being an expansion franchise because when you're an expansion franchise, there are rules and policies to follow. You have a league that you know you're going to be in. This is a team in a league that may never play a game. You know, they're trying to convince people to come come with us and we'll play next year, you know. So it was a real shaky thing from the beginning, but the Pacers actually had a firmer foundation than any other team in the league.
0: I think you wrote about Humes that they told him 95% chance you'd make the team correct. And then a lot changed between then did not happen. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty jarring to, to hear about, but Hey, he got to enjoy the moment with the the money on his bed. Um, a, a league, a league moment. I'm kind of curious about, I don't know if you know any more about this than what you had in there, but, um, George and at one point suggesting, and this is funny given the current state of the NBA, especially that there'd be a six foot arc a one-point shot circle, do you know how serious that ever was? And what do you kind of think of that idea conceptually? Because that would make the two-pointer and the mid-range shot more valuable, as some have kind of wanted in the modern era.
1: You could argue it's not a bad idea. It'd make refereeing that much more difficult to determine (laughs) if I was in the arc, you know? No kidding. It was discussed, but I don't think it was a serious discussion. And, of course, the idea for the three-point shot didn't come around for a while. The ABL, as you know, had tried it. So there was a little bit of history with it. But, you know, George Mikan pushed for it because he wanted a little guy to have a place in the game. And, of course, he was one of the great centers of all time when he was the commissioner, but he wanted the, the little guy to have a, a place in the league. So he thought giving three points for a shot was good. And then and he really pushed for the red, white, and blue ball. And to me, that's iconic. I mean, when people think of the ABA now, they think of the red, white, and blue ball, and it really was a beautiful thing to watch. And so while George Mikan wasn't, really a good commissioner. He certainly helped the league get off the ground and had some good ideas, and he lent some name recognition to the league. Um, and I know a lot of people were skeptical about the three-point shot and the red, white, and blue ball because they were new things. But uh, George Mike and pushed forward and got it through, and some of the other ideas that weren't as strong got shoved aside.
0: It was really fascinating, too, to think about, and you just kind of talked about this with not, it's not an expansion team, it's a whole new team of how much the Pacers, especially early, kind of chased local players. Of course, Oscar Robertson being the headline of that. He never actually played for the Pacers, but the Van Arsdale, several Mr. Basketballs, like they really wanted those local guys to kind of draw in you know, interest locally when they could. Do you feel like they they over-indexed on that? Why do you feel like that was so important to them? Because the ticket sale data was always really good. And like you said, they were more financially solvent than some other teams. But how, you know, how much interest do you feel like in the league was due to the local stars versus just seeing pro basketball at the time?
1: Oh, I think the guys they pursued were pretty established. You know, the Benares were both in the NBA and they happened to be free agents uh, in 1967. Oscar Robertson happened to be a free agent in 1967. And the Pacers offered him an opportunity to be player coach, offered him like ninety thousand dollars and a clothing allowance and all kinds of things. Uh, made a serious offer. He never took their offer seriously because he wasn't going to leave the Royals for a league that may not ever make it. And he didn't want to coach anyway. But um, and John McLaughlin was a the guy they had interest in. So the guys with Indiana backgrounds that they pursued for the most part were pretty established players. And they no doubt would have really helped the team. I mean, the Van Arsdales, I think they both played in the league 12 years. And um, uh, McLaughlin had a long career, played on championship teams. And, uh, you know, of course, we know about Oscar Robertson. So uh, it was legitimate. You know, it was a legitimate effort to have a good team. But certainly there was the bonus of them
0: being able to sell some tickets. The name Pacers. I i thought this was so fascinating, even when you dug through newspaper archives that the origin of the name specifically could never really be found, right? Storin said, I think, something about it being fan submitted. Some people thought that he, someone else came up with it. What is your best guess from your research?
1: Yeah, I've never been able to come up with a good uh, answer for that. Who came up with the idea of Pacers? Now, Storen claims it was his idea... Mike was a good GM, but he was prone to, you know, uh, stretch things a little bit. uh, (laughs) The truth is concerned. There was a lady I know who took credit for it. I just don't know. It's lost to history. It surprises me that in the newspaper articles, when they announced this team would be called the Pacers, they didn't say who came up with it. Uh, And a lot of people think it has to do with the Indianapolis 500. It really does not. It has to do with harness racing at the fairgrounds track across. From the Coliseum at the state fairgrounds, uh, th- there's a little bit of a tie into the Indianapolis 500, but not really. When you think about it, have you ever heard the pace car referred to as a pacer? No. Nobody ever says, oh, the pacer this year's really cool Corvette or whatever. You know, it's not a pacer. A pacer is a type of horse that competes in harness racing. So uh, that's really what it comes down to. Now, I think it's a good name for a professional basketball team. They talk about we want to set the pace but it really is about harness racing more so than the Indianapolis 500. Uh,
0: another fun, not Pacers thing that I enjoyed was the the hosting of the 1968 first ever ABA All-Star game, which was very prom- well promoted and hyped up and did not turn out to sell as many tickets as they claimed. Do you remember a lot of local buzz for that? Or do you know anyone who actually attended? What can you you recall at all about that game, both from your research and from your life?
1: Right. I know people who went to it. I did not. See, I would have been 12 years old at that time. Uh, went to some Pacer games that first year, but didn't go to the All-Star game. Um, the Pacers did the league a huge favor, put that thing on, lost about $40,000 doing it. They got it televised, though, to most of the major market areas around the country. and A Los Angeles station came in and did the broadcast. Rick Barry was color commentator. And so it was great. Publicity for the ABA and the guys put on a pretty good show who played in the game, um but it didn't draw well. You know, <laughs> they announced that it was like it was announced as a sellout, it was announced as 11,000 people, whatever. The actual bodies and seats was something like it was less than 5,000, if I remember correctly, four to 5,000, but people spread out in the lower seating area over there at Butler. And it looked pretty full on television because they didn't show the upper areas. They had some bad luck with uh, competition. First of all, the weather was bad that day, so that didn't help walk-up ticket sales. IU had a basketball game that night on television, and Purdue played one that was on the radio. So the college fans had something else to do, and the weather didn't help. So it just it didn't draw well, and the Pacers lost a lot of money, but it still was a big boost for the league.
0: Yeah, that, that was really fascinating to see, especially the controversy about... Voting on MVP before the end of the game, and we'll we'll get to Mel Daniels. Uh, actually, right now, because another fun part of seeing this was I didn't know that I knew they traded for Mel Daniels. I didn't realize how much the Minnesota franchise literally folding and needing money played into that being possible for them. And Mel Daniels, of course, should have been the MVP of that first All Star game. And so I I want to make sure I get this right. It was Jimmy Dawson, Ron Ko- Kozlicki, and one hundred fifty thousand dollars was the trade for Mel Daniels. I think a hundred thousand. A hundred thousand. Oh, that's right. That's right. It was. It was. Um, the business guy wanted one hundred fifty thousand, but it was actually a hundred thousand. And yeah, um, what a steal! First of all, because Mel Daniels is a Hall of Famer and a huge pivot point for the franchise. Like of all the things that that went well for the Pacers or went their way, how significant was that one to you in terms of being a pivotal moment in them both being good and sticking as a franchise forever?
1: Yeah, I think you could make a good argument that the Pacers wouldn't be here today if not for that trade. You know, because you know without mel the pacers finished uh two games under 500 that first season and um you know people were starting to lose a little bit of interest everybody was excited when it first began but you know how it goes if you keep losing fan interest will drop off if they had remained a mediocre team they probably would have folded at some point they didn't make money when they were winning so they certainly weren't going to survive when they were losing if they were or just an average team so the Pacers had a lot of luck those first couple of years. In fact, uh, whenever they have something that's bad luck today, I think, well, they had so much good luck their first couple of years. They burned <laughs> about 50 years worth of good luck right there. Um, so they got Mel for a steal because the Minneapolis franchise was moving to Miami. They desperately needed cash. And the people in Miami didn't know any better. You know, they probably never heard of Mel Daniels. They were going to complain about the trade they're hopefully just happy to be getting a franchise down there so uh, it was a great opportunity for the pacers to get Mel on the cheap like that, and no other franchise apparently in the aba uh, could come up with a better offer so the pacers got him basically for a hundred thousand dollars and two guys who never played again and um, it just it made all the difference in the world to get a future league mvp and a hall of famer who to me was the heart and soul of their championship teams um you know, if without that trade, uh, the Pacers, again, probably don't exist today. You could also say without getting Slicklander to coach the team, they might not exist. Without getting Roger Brown on the team, they don't exist. There's a few different things that were all crucial, but it all came together eventually. But getting Mel Daniels was certainly as big a deal as any of them to keep the franchise here.
0: And all three of those things you just said happened in their first two years of ABA existence, which is, is totally fascinating. I Something I appreciated that you included in the epilogue is you. if there was like kind of not even conflicting, but just like slightly different recountings of a tale you would try to include both sides and with the Daniel's trade there was something about the Kentucky Colonels driving up and they were going to offer more money to the Min- to the Minnesota team but uh, no one ever actually verified that that happened
1: yeah i got a hold of the colonel joe gregory who owned the colonels and i think he's still alive and he was certainly alive when i did the book i called him uh he said no no that wasn't the case. <laughs> but mel and nettlecki for some reason uh on Camera, you know, started telling that story like oh, the colonels were right behind with a better offer, but they were just a little too late. You know, there's no source of that. I don't know where those guys came up with that story, but (laughs) um, I found no verification whatsoever. And you have to believe that, you know, when many, when the Minneapolis franchise was moving, they're at the league meeting, you know, they had to have just thrown it out there. Hey, Mel Daniels is for sale. Give me your best offer, you know, and If somebody had had a better one, they would have taken that one instead. So I don't think there's any verification to the Colonels, you know, being ready to give a better offer.
0: We can and will talk about some of the other significant personnel moments between players and coaches of the Pacers sticking and being relevant in Indy, but... Another one you wrote about and had a a whole chapter on this being a big focus of it, at least, was the 3-1 comeback against the the Colonels in the 1969, their second season, postseason. They were down 3-1, and they came back and won that series, ended up making it to the finals that year. What, to you, was the significance of, of that series, winning it, and of that run, making the finals in the second year? Of course, they ended up winning three of the next four after that, but... In terms of fan interest, in terms of keeping coaches, which we'll talk about in a second, all sorts of stuff. How much was that comeback pivotal to their start as well?
1: Yeah, to me, that's when the city really fell in love with the Pacers. You know, they uh, they really came on strong that second year after Slick Lender took over as coach after getting off to a terrible start and firing Larry Staverman. But, um, you know, they're down three to one to, to the Colonels. And the Colonels started talking pretty. Uh, confidently in the press about uh, winning that series and you know yes you can imagine geographically there was a great rivalry between the two cities just a couple hours apart down the interstate and um, to be down three to one and make that comeback and actually win a game seven on the home court it was treated like a championship I mean the cover of the book is you know them carrying slick off the floor after winning game seven at the Coliseum after being down three to one, you know, the back cover of the book is the line of fans uh, waiting to get tickets. Yeah. For uh, game seven uh, out in front of their office on 38th street. And um, so it was really a turning point. And to me, when the city really fell in love with the Pacers and got excited about the team, um, you know, you think about the Pacer history, Tony, you know, almost all the greatest moments have come on the road, right? (laughs) Reggie's moments, in the NBA, you know, all the most of their huge playoff wins have come on the road, um, but this was one that happened at home. They had a game seven in a first round series at home and after being down 3-1, came back and won that series and the fans stormed the court, carried Slick and some of the players hopped the court. It was treated like a championship.
0: Yeah, I, I truly wondered how, if I was a fan at the time, <laughs> what that would have meant just to see them finally have that level of success, and they did make the finals that year, and that Oakland team was was extremely talented and beat them. Something else that came from that that I thought was interesting, and you knew Slick pretty well, so I'm curious if you have more insight on this, was that, okay, so he was he had a sales job at Herff Jones while coaching, and he wasn't sure if he would come back for his second season. Um, do you feel like that was actually a hard decision for him or was he just pretending it was a hard decision when he went on this vacation to decide and again you knew him well how big was that for the franchise for him to actually return and be what he was
1: yeah i think he was going to come back because he knew he <laughs> had the young talented team maybe at the very moment he was interviewed he was tired and kind of burned out and thought maybe he wouldn't want to do it but i can't imagine he ever seriously considered not coming back it was probably a negotiating ploy although his first contract, which I actually have a copy of, was for two years. So he was kind of stuck with the contract, which I think paid like 22500 or something like that that first year. And he got bonuses for getting to the finals and all that. But that was pretty good money in 1969. Uh, it may not sound like it today, but that was actually good money. Bob Knight's first contract at IU in 1971 was for 20000 So uh, for a coach to be getting over 20000 in the late 60s, early 70s was uh, pretty much the norm. And um, so he was going to come back. You know, I think like in July or something like that, they announced he was coming back and had a press conference and made a big deal out of it. But I have to believe he was coming back all along.
0: Yeah, that's the I think that's the impression you gave when you said it was, you know, he loved the competitive part of it. And of course, he is now a legend within the franchise. But that I didn't know that he, even if it was fake, (laughs) pretended that he might not have returned. I think that would have been another key pivotal point to look back on. In history, the last thing I really want to, to kind of ask about is you mentioned I and I talked to you about this before we started chatting here is that you kind of hope to make this a trilogy, both with the pre-ABA basketball in Indiana. You have a little bit of that at the beginning, and then the rest of the ABA days until the NBA. But this this is sort of outside of the book, but the the transition to the NBA and the merger that the two leagues had, like that's seven years before the Colts were even in Indy. Like, how significant was that? for the franchise in Indianapolis, just that the ABA worked and they were able to kind of be a part of that big league all of a sudden.
1: Yeah, it was huge. It was really huge because even though, you know, the fans here love the ABA, uh, the NBA was still the bigger deal. You know, it was the more established league and they had a lot of great players. The ABA did too, I realized, but the NBA was still the more established league and it was the league that was going to survive. And so for the Pacers to get into it, uh, was, it created a lot of enthusiasm, no question about it. Um, you know, people were excited about the Boston Celtics coming in all of a sudden with John Havlicek or different guys, and you know, go right down the line of players who are going to suddenly come in play in Indianapolis. So it was huge, uh, and the Pacers, again, were very lucky to get into it. They had to come up with $3.2 million, and there was basically one guy in town, William Eason, who put that money up <laughs> and uh, went to New York and, and wrote the check and the Pacers, uh, got into the NBA, uh, you know, just like they had gotten into the ABA nine years earlier. It just took a lot more money this time. <laughs> and uh, it really was kind of one guy who, who did it for the Pacers to get them into the NBA. They still struggled. And as after a few years, the attendance wasn't good, but, uh, still they got in and it was, there was a lot of excitement. I remember seeing 19 at when that merger happened, I was just out of college. And I was excited about it, you know, that you know, Pacers are an NBA team. And you know, you're thinking of all the franchises or players that were going to be coming into town that you could go see play now. So, um, you know, we all know about the telephone to save the franchise. That was a year later, but just to get in there uh was a big deal, and it wasn't automatic by any means, you know. I mean, somebody had to come up with a lot of money, and the Pacers had to really bite the bullet and give up a first round draft pick. And they were really penalized for, you know, getting admitted to the NBA, but it did happen.
0: You have so many details from conversations, moments, and stuff about people in this book that were fascinating, but I'm curious if there's any one thing in there or one story that is your favorite from your time doing all this research.
1: Ah, uh, let me think. You know, I think one of the great stories of the Pacers' first couple of seasons is Reggie Harding, you know, who yep. who is on. Yeah, I did a whole chapter on him. I thought he deserved it. And I even I got Reggie's autograph when I was a kid, which I show in the back of the book saw some at the airport one day. Um, you know, Reggie still gets talked about in basketball circles. And you'll see things on social media where people bring up Reggie Harding, fascinating guy, a seven-foot center, really talented. He almost went straight from high school to the NBA. He went to like a prep school or uh, whatever in between uh, I think it was in Tennessee. He had to go one more year. He never got his high school diploma. But Reggie was a charismatic, nice guy, but grew up in the ghetto in Detroit and had a shaky home situation. And just couldn't stay out of trouble. And uh, he was always getting fined, suspended, whatever. But he played 20-some games with the Pacers. He outplayed Mel Daniels in head-to-head competition. I mean, he was really good. To me, if he would had his head on straight uh, and had a better beginning in life, would probably be in the Hall of Fame today. You know, the Pacers had him for part of the season, but then he found a way to get himself suspended before the playoffs and wasn't with them then. But, you know, they were on the verge of becoming a really good team with him, and then it all fell apart. But he was a tragic story and wound up getting getting shot and killed in Detroit a few years after um, he was with the Pacers. And it's really a shame because it's kind of a what could have been story. Uh, So uh, he was just a real interesting The teammates liked him, but he was just so maddening because he'd be late for this or not show up for that. Just so irresponsible. So he's just one of the all-time great what-could-have-been stories in basketball.
0: I really appreciated your story about hunting down his autograph in the airport, not only because it was a personal anecdote, but because you included in there how people's memories can be so shaky because in your mind it was a Sunday, but you can check that it was a Thursday, right? So that makes reporting these longer details so difficult.
1: Yeah, when you're interviewing people, you hear a lot of things that sound great, but when you have the opportunity to check them, either in a newspaper or whatever, they don't check out. And I don't (laughs) accuse people of lying because our memories play tricks on us. You know, If you're talking about 50 years ago, you can't necessarily remember every detail accurately. So for some reason, I remember that being a Sunday when we were out at the airport to meet my mom who was flying in. Uh, but it turned out to be a Thursday because my mom kept the journal <laughs> and um, detailed it. So I was able to prove it. And then I was able to say that well, this was the day after he had a big game and the day before he had another big game and why he was at the airport. I have no idea. But um, yeah, you know, I, like I'll have a player, I, I, I know one player, the guards tell me he had 13 rebounds in a game one time, pro game. And you could look this stuff up on basketball reference. And no, he didn't actually. You know, he. <laughs> Uh, and again, I don't think he's lying. I just think he, for some reason, that was in his memory. One, I, I could, I'm personally guilty because I, for years, have told people one of my sports highlights as a kid was throwing a two hit shutout in little, little league baseball, but. Speaking of my mom's journals, I ran across it where she was at that game and wrote in the journal that day that I got the pitch and my team won 11 to six. So obviously, I didn't throw a two hit shutout. And that kind of triggered a memory that I had a two hit shutout for like three or four innings and then didn't. But, and I wasn't lying to people. My mind had just kind of convinced itself that I had done it, you know. And I think that happens a lot in sports where an athlete, or anybody will convince themselves that something had happened that really didn't. And in most cases you can check things out in a newspaper or online somewhere, or you can always go talk to other people. I I had uh, one player told me that Marvin Gaye once played a pickup game with the ABA Pacers in the seventies, but only one guy tells me that and nobody else remembers it. So it's just one guy. Another guy told me that when the Pacers were in Memphis one time to play in the ABA Elvis, invited the Pacers out to Graceland Mansion and his guest. But again, one guy remembers it, nobody else does. (laughs) So maybe the guys had a dream or who knows how these things get in our heads. But um, you you have one person tell you a great story that would be great to put in a book, but you have four or five other guys who say, I don't remember that. So you just have to discard it that way. So uh, that's why, Tony, I'm a uh, skeptic of oral histories. Because if you just put a microphone in front of somebody, ask for their stories, you'll hear great stories, but you need to double check them. And that's part of the issue I have with Loose Balls, which is a classic ABA book. There's tons of great stories in there, but I know some of them that relate to the Pacers are not true. And the newspapers will verify that they aren't true. Uh, you know, he had Mel Daniels telling an anecdote. Well, Mel wasn't even at the game that he's talking about because he was back home. He had the flu and didn't go on that road trip. So oral histories, you know, I'm skeptic of, if you're really going to have a serious journalistic project, you need to verify everything you can, or at least say that it may be true. It may not. There's other versions of the story, that kind of thing. Um, So that's what I tried to do in Reborn.
0: Well hey you could have thro- uh, uh, per baseball scoring it could have been a two inning shutout with a bunch of errors and you had no earned runs that that's I had no infield behind me it was just you pigeon, with no other team. Mark, thank you very much for this time. This has been wonderful. Anyone listening who's still here, I highly recommend you check out Reborn. You can get it in bookstores on Amazon. Mark, is there a way you'd prefer people order this?
1: Uh, Amazon is probably the best way now. I don't know if it's in local bookstores. It might be in some, but not all. You know, the book now, it, it's been, you know what, five years or so since it came out. So bookstores may not carry, but it's certainly on Amazon. I always have copies. If people know how to get a hold of me. I can uh, get something directly to them. So it's out there. Uh, There's only a few hundred copies left. I'm looking forward to getting to a second printing. I can tweak a few things and make it a little bit better. Uh, So we are running, almost running out of the first edition of the book, Uh, but it is still available.
0: Highly recommend anyone checks it out and the rest of Mark's work on his website. Thank you all for listening today. We will see you soon.